If you are a longtime listener to the Happier at Work podcast, you will have heard me speak previously about my signature Happier at Work program. The program has now moved beyond the pilot phase and it's for organisations who want to maintain a really great culture that they already have. They know that their staff are really, really important and they want to retain staff for as long as possible and drive a sense of better engagement at work. Overall, ultimately, what the programme does is create a happier working environment using research-backed methods. What that means is we look at the current state of play, what needs to change, and then we measure the effectiveness of that change during the programme and also when the programme finishes. The programme itself is very practical and it is designed with coaching as well in order to embed the learning into the organisation. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for leaders who put people first. The podcast covers four broad themes, engagement and belonging, performance and productivity, leadership equity, and the future of work. Everything to do with the Happier at Work podcast relates to employee retention. You can find out more at happieratwork.ie. Amy Edmondson, who's you know the pioneer of psychological safety says, one of the best ways to create it is asking good questions. And that's what our software is built to do, is to help people communicate, ask good questions, and thus build that psychological safety and trust. Hello and welcome back to the Happier Work podcast. As always, I'm so delighted you decided to tune in. Today, I have a real treat for you. Kelly Mackin of Motives Met. Kelly and I have an amazing discussion. We're very aligned in terms of the background that we have in relation to quantitative research, being kind of data nerds. And I absolutely love the approach that Kelly takes to well-being. We look at things like psychological safety and whether needs are being satisfied at work and really kind of deep dive into these different areas. As always, I would love you to stay tuned to the end. I'm going to do a wrap up of some of the key points and what are the, some of the key takeaways from today's episode? What are some actions that you can take straight away to dive into? And I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. As I mentioned on a previous podcast, there is a new facility through Spotify that you can reply directly within the platform itself and let me know what you thought of today's episode or ask any questions or share any thoughts that you have. Otherwise, head over to social media. You will find all of my social media channels through the website happieratwork.ie. Do get involved in the conversation. I would love to know what you thought of today's episode. If you have anything to add, if you have anything to ask, do let me know and feel free to reach out. Kelly, I'm so delighted to have you as my guest today on the Happier at Work podcast. You want to introduce yourself to listeners, give a little bit of a background to how you got to where you are today. Yes, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me today. I have so been looking forward to our chat. Um, I'm Kelly Mackin. I'm author of the upcoming book, Work Life Well Lived, and co-founder of Motives Met. Motives Met is a work well-being platform that empowers people to create well-being in their work life and workplace. We dove deep into research to really answer the burning question, what creates true well-being at work? And what we found is contrary to popular belief, a lot of what you hear from different thought leaders and read on the internet. Essentially, we discovered we get it wrong. And so we wanted to take our insights to help get it right. And 
really develop what we call a non-BS approach to well-being at work and develop actual tools to really help people, you know, tangible things that they can do. So a big part of our platform is our research. It's our framework. And we call it a human needs framework because it's very much centered in people first. And I know this is something that you've talked about plenty on your podcast. So I think you'll enjoy that quite a bit. From our research, we uncovered that people have a few needs that rise to the top that really drive their well-being at work. So we developed an assessment tool that would help people really uncover what are those? What needs do I need met to live my best work life right now mm -hmm. in this current season of my work life? Because of course, our needs change over time. And then we realized this is something that people aren't really talking about at work and we need no. to talk about it. We need to have the psychological safety, as you know. So we built a first of its kind software to help people do just that. So we can get into all the good stuff, all the details around those things. But to share with you how I got to where I am today, to be lucky enough to finally have the well-being in my work life and actually be able to you know, have the privilege of now helping other people created in their work life, I had to go through quite the journey of ill being at work. Like mm -hmm. I know I am not the only one who listens to your podcast who can relate to this. And it really started way back when I was just a kid. I grew up, unfortunately, seeing my mom in a really horrific work situation. And then I unfortunately followed right in those footsteps. Mm -hmm. And it took a very serious toll on my well-being physically, mentally, emotionally. And it really took kind of hitting rock bottom for me to wake up and get clarity and go, God, you know, I deserve well-being at work. Mm. Everybody deserves well-being at work. Because at the time, I very much had the mindset, you have to earn the well-being, right? You have to work your way up and get to that place. And then maybe you can be happy and healthy. And again, this is something that, you know, so many of us grew up thinking, this is just the way it is, right? Just power through, be tough. You're not really supposed to be super happy at work. You're not supposed to get your needs met there. So it was quite a mindset shift. And, you know, it always seems so obvious on the other side, but I did need that wake up call. And that realization really fueled my passion for well being. And I changed my whole life at that point. I picked up, I moved from Chicago to California to really pursue well-being both personally and professionally. So I'm a human behavior researcher of human behavior. I love to dig deep into research of why we do what we do. Why sometimes we don't do the things we wanna do. How can we be most happy and healthy in our life? And that researcher curiosity in me really led me to go, I wanna understand this even deeper. So then I started studying psychology, I studied how our brain works. I became a certified cognitive coach, a cognitive behavioral therapy practitioner. That brain training led me to meditation. And that opened up so many different things. So I became a certified meditation teacher, dove into mindfulness, and used all those tools to develop my own coaching practice around well-being and around stress and anxiety. And wouldn't you know it, for most of my clients, work was one of the biggest stressors in their life, of no surprise. Doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yes, doesn't, no surprise, right? That was a common theme, for sure. That was a common trend. And it was around 2019, I believe, where my mom and I 
we're really talking about the work world we dreamed of, the one that we believed could be possible. For the first time, you know, work and well-being was being used in the same sentence, which up until that point was really something that was rare. So we felt like it was a very pivotal time where it was possible, but we didn't want to just talk about it. We said, you know, let's take action. We want to take action and do something. And that's when her and I, along with a few others, really started Motives Med and went on our mission to go, you know, how do we achieve what we call the attainable dream of a work-life well-lived? I love that. There's so so, so much that I want to unpack in what you've said there. Um, so I might pick up on a few things uh, and go through them kind of one at a time. Um, so as you know, you've listened to the podcast and for people who have listened to the podcast quite a bit, this needs approach is something that I'm so into. And that's what I did all of my dissertation research on. Uh, our psychological needs. So I'm dying to talk about that. Um, I loved this phrase that you use, the ill being at work and how, there, you know, so many people are not well at work. And this fact that we feel like we have to put in the work and then and then and then I'll be happy. I'll be happy when when I get the promotion, I'll be happy when I have less work to do, when I'm less busy. It's always some time in the future and it it's perpetuating this this sense of ill being at work. So I just I, I love that phrase that you had um, that and, and this perception that we're not supposed to be happy at work. Work is supposed to suck. And and, you know, I borrowed that phrase from um, Adam Grant. I think he says that all the time. He's like, I'm here to tell you that work doesn't have to suck, basically, um, you know, <laughs> and it's so true because I think we grow up with this perception. And, and when I talk to people from older generations, about what I do, they're they're kind of really surprised saying, well, you know, it wasn't like that back in my day. You kind of go into the office, you do whatever you have to do, and then you go home and, and, and that's it. Um, but things have changed. And I think rightly so. I think there is opportunity. Um, I love this idea then of the future world of work and what's actually possible. And, and maybe we'll kind of we'll end on that. But I, I think a, a really interesting place to start will be how to define. And I love how you're like, it's a it's a no BS approach. I'd love to know what what you, would you consider? And I, I was kind of like, oh, tell me who's saying all of this stuff that's incorrect. Like name names or don't name names. But I'd love to know what you consider to be BS and then how you arrived at your own definition of what what workplace well-being really is. When we started on our journey, we really started with the basic question of what is it, right? What is work well-being? Because there really isn't a common definition or theme. Mm -hmm. And we discovered there is so much noise out there. For example, there are different thought leaders and CEOs who will go on TED Talks and they will tell you it's all about purpose. Purpose is the golden ticket. If you want to keep your people happy, you need to create purpose. If you want to be happy in your work life, you need to have meaning. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of tough out of luck. You're always going to settle. I was, another example, I was on a webinar last week with a head of people and culture from an organization. And her message was, it's all about belonging and inclusion. You want to retain your employees. If you want them to be happy, that's what you got to focus on. There's other um, assessment tools out there like Gallup Strength Finders that tells you it's all about strengths. Then there's books dedicated to work-life balance or remote working. There's the messages on Instagram of 
hustle hard, reach your goals. If you want to be happy at work, it's all about fulfilling your big ambitions. And that's not even including all the research. So if I may, I'd love to read a few facts and figures with you. Please do. Research has found, for example, that higher levels of autonomy leads to greater well-being and satisfaction at work. But research also says 60% of employees consider coworkers to be the biggest contributor to their well-being and happiness. uh, 79% of people who quit their jobs say it's because of lack of appreciation at work. But a different research study says 63% of workers who quit says it's about their career growth not being possible at their company, and that's why they quit. There's a third of workers who say work-life balance is the most important to them, but then 71% of workers say fair treatment at work is of top importance. And those who do perceive their work as fair have about 30% higher retention rate. And I could go on and on. I mean, I could go on for pages of this research study and that research study. And it is exhausting. When I started on this journey, I was like, dang, I am exhausted here. And it's not that there isn't benefit to some of this information, but we need a way to organize, prioritize, and understand it in a way that really helps Mm. because it's overwhelming and contradictory and conflicting. So when we started on the journey, kind of that's where we started going, okay, how are we going to cut through this clutter? Mm. Because then when we talked to people and said, hey, how do you define well-being? What do you think you need to be most happy at work? They were confused. They were guessing more than knowing. And our research, so they also didn't truly get it right of what they really needed to live their best work life. And we said, well, no wonder Because the way we define things in our lives often comes from, you know, thought leaders, what we, you know, see on Instagram, what we watch in a TED Talk. So if everybody in the world's confused, then of course, we personally don't have a super clear picture on what we need. So that was kind of that journey to get us into our research. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting, this idea of how do you define well-being? And if I may, just some things sprung to my mind um, when you're asking this question of how do you define well-being, how I see it being defined. And when I worked in corporate, how it was being defined, it's things like having fruit delivered to the office or having someone come in to deliver a yoga class. It tend to focus very much on the physical from what I could see. And in in our a corporate situation in the company that I worked in, we we had a well-being week and I see other people kind of doing well-being initiatives throughout the year or having a program, you know, maybe once a week throughout the year or once a month throughout the year or maybe a well-being month. So various different things like this. But it, it's a really valuable question and, and maybe one for listeners to just t- pause and take stock and ask themselves, what is what does well-being at work actually mean for them? Like for me, it is happiness at work. And I think let's talk about, you know, the the kind of some of the conclusions that you drew from the research that you've done to show like what's actually driving this, what what is driving that at at work? Yes, I love that you brought up the point around the physical aspect of well-being and kind of the shiny objects. It's something we talk with leaders a lot about. We call them kind of the band-aid approaches to well-being with the stress, feeling with the burnout. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, what we found is you can do all those things. And it's not to say they might not be appreciated because they might. But if people's deeper needs aren't met and Mm. we call them motives, it just doesn't matter. Mm. It doesn't make up for it. And we often find, too, that they're not even 
talking to their people to really figure out what shiny perks or even physical wealth, you know, wellness programs truly are interesting to them. They're just Mm. kind of like, oh, I read an article that says this is a good idea. So let's do that. Yeah. And they're just, and they're just not having those conversations where we're saying, hey, got to talk to your people. And it seems so simple, but so many people aren't doing it. Oh, Kelly, you're so speaking my language now, you know, and to kind of slightly veer off topic for a second, when people ask me about remote working and hybrid and what to do about the return to the office, they're looking for a solution and they're looking for what's the company down the road doing. And my number one answer is always talk to your people, ask them what they want, ask them what they need. How is the work going to get done? And can you do it asynchronously? Can you do it when people are working at different times? And can you do it when people are working in different locations? Or do you need to bring people together? And how do you do that? I was going to say in the fairest possible way, but it's not even about being fair. It's about making sure that 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 people are well and they're not coming into the office just for the sake of it. Um, but, you know, that everything's still kept on track and that they're able to get their work done without feeling really, really frustrated. So I'd, I'd love to kind of understand a little bit more about, um, you know, what what the motives are or is it a case, as I understand it, is it, it might be different for different people, but there might be basic different needs. And what you said about autonomy earlier really resonated because it's from the research I've done, it's not a case of just giving people a whole load of autonomy. You need to find the balance. So when I talk about needs, it's about that balance of needs. If you take the example of autonomy and when you are early in your career, you need less auto- less autonomy than when as you progress your career. So as you progress your career, you need more and more autonomy or you can have more and more autonomy. Uh, So that's kind of one aspect of it. But another aspect is that different people have different levels or needs for autonomy. So if you give someone too much autonomy, they might feel a little bit directionless. They need a little bit more guidance as to what they need to do. And if you have too little autonomy, and I presume at this stage, most people have had the misfortune of being uh, working under a micromanager. So, you know, you get this sense that you're not really you don't really have a sense of choice and control over what you're doing or how you're doing, whether that's being mandated back to the office or um, here's how you should carry out your work without leaving you to kind of decide for yourself what the best approach is. Yes, I love what you're saying because it is based on the person and actually two needs are autonomy and clear expectations. Mm -hmm. We find that there can be tension between those things and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But to back up to your kind of original question of kind of how do we define well-being, from our research, we found that well-being at work is when people's most important psychological, emotional, and social needs, what we call motives, are met. Our data found that there are 28 primary human needs, 28 motives that make up well-being at work, and that these 28 needs fall into 10 larger buckets, if you will. We call them motive domains. For example, in the freedom bucket, there is the need for autonomy, there is the need for flexibility, and the need for free expression. In the significance domain, the company appreciation, peer appreciation, and self-esteem motive. In the balance domain, there's work-life harmony and balanced pace. Purpose is a motive, shared culture, security, fairness, calmness, 
community, peer connection. And if you go to our website, we have a really cool visual framework that animates and it's colored and it makes it really easy to grasp kind of how this all works together. Um, but what our data also found is that we don't need these things to the same degree in the same way at the same point in our work life. Mm. We all have a few core needs that are present in this season. We all have a few motives that rise to the top in importance and influence. And when those needs are met, that's when we're going to thrive the most. So all of these motives matter. They just don't matter equally to each person. Of the 28, there may be a few that truly are never essential for your work wellness. There may be some that are kind of secondary right now. And in the future, in 10 years, they may become a well-being driver for you. But the point is, it's going to vary person to person. So we can't, again, take this one size fits all approach. And really, what our framework is, is it's the epitome of people first, because people first equals needs first. Mm. And we say job satisfaction equals need satisfaction. And that's what our research showed. That time and time again, people have, who have their top motives met are more likely to be happy at work, connected, engaged. They stay at their company longer. They don't want to leave. We could go on and on of the benefits mm. of when these needs are met. But beyond the people, the but beyond kind of that people approach, and I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot. You know, mm. it's kind of a buzzword, that people first idea. It's about taking one step further to a person-centered approach. Mm. It's about that individualized consideration instead of that broad one-size-fits-all because well-being is deeply personal. And that is what can make it a little bit tough because you need to know yourself really well. You need to have conscious awareness, really be paying attention to what's most important as you're making all these important decisions in your work life. You need to know other people and other people need to know you because we find that well-being is co-created. We need other people to help us meet our motives. We need to support one another at work. And if you're a leader, you really have to know your people. But the problem is we're finding this stuff doesn't happen. We all have blind spots. We're not paying attention to certain needs. We're all so busy. We're just getting through the day. We don't even stop to think about what we want and we need. We don't have these conversations with our work peers to really know how are we different? Why does maybe something matter to you? Why maybe am I clashing with you? Because I'm very autonomy driven as a manager. And this is something we uncovered in a workshop. I'm very autonomy driven, but you're very clear expectations driven. Mm. And so I'm just not even thinking about that because it's so not something I need. Yeah. So it's so important that those conversations are happening and they're just not. And that's why we did go, okay, now how do we develop tools to overcome these obstacles? Mm. Let's develop an assessment that helps people become consciously aware of their needs. Mm. Let's help facilitate software so that meaningful conversations that matter happen. And let's embrace motive diversity. And that's a big part of our framework because we find that when it comes to motives, we can be judgy that we can misunderstand them at times. And I will wholeheartedly admit this about myself. If I think back in my career, I can think of times where I judged people a little bit 
based on their need, or I kind of wish that they had the same thing I did, or I just kind of thought I was right. And this is what you should care about at work. Right. And that is really can breed disconnection Hmm. because certain motives can be put on this pedestal. They can be glamorized. They can be a buzzword. Like autonomy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then certain motives like fun or challenge or Mm. free expression, they can kind of be overlooked Mm. or be thought as frivolous or just, again, they're just not in the consideration set. So it's really important for us to embrace and respect motive diversity and learn to live in the tension of these needs well, Mm. because it can be very difficult for one person to satisfy two really important needs. It can be really difficult if two people have, you know, interpersonally have different needs. Mm. So that idea of embracing that mode of diversity is really important. Yeah. And I think just understanding and coming back to your point on autonomy versus clear expectations, if you're someone who's very autonomous, maybe you expect someone else just to get on with it and to understand what the expectations are or to work it out for themselves. And like almost neglect to give them the clear expectations that they need in order to feel satisfied at work, in order to feel like they're getting the support that they need in order to succeed. Absolutely. And that's what really in this, that one example I gave kind of came out in the workshop of the manager was like, wow, I've kind of been neglecting that. And I didn't really mean to, it's just, Mm -hmm. again, it's not, he said, part of the reason he took the job at the company initially was it was very startup he didn't really have many expectations. He got to pave the way. Yeah. And now all of a sudden he has a team of seven people or eight people, I think it was. And they're wanting to go, hey, what do I need to do to succeed? What do you expect? Mm. And it's just not what he's thinking about. Yeah. So it's really important that those conversations, again, are being had at work. But it's really, yeah, it's it's really great that it's a tool that facilitates those conversations because that's something... You know, and it's worth bringing this to people's awareness. Like when I talk about values at work and when I talk about need satisfaction at work, I always say, like, if you had asked me five years ago, what are your core values? I wouldn't know what the company's core values were, but I had no idea what my own were, um, you know, on a on a kind of on a conscious level and and how that applies in the workplace. But equally, had you asked me what are your needs at work? I'd be like, I have no idea. And so to facilitate the the needs conversation, how I talk to people about that is understanding what areas are you frustrated in at work? And I think that, you know, it sort of ties into what we were talking about. And I do love that example of the clear expectations versus autonomy, because if you're frustrated at work because you don't have clear expectations that someone hasn't articulated to you what what is expected of you or what the what success means in the role, what success means in the team, or, um, you know, making that direct link between what you do and what you contribute to the impact of the overall organization, I think can can leave people feeling, if not even frustrated, they might they may not go to the level of frustration, but if they don't get that connection between, you know, what they do and understanding the impact that they're having at work, then I think it can leave you feeling maybe a little bit empty and a little bit disengaged. Absolutely. I love that you brought up the emotional component because that's a big part of motives that really behind all the needs that we really desire at work, what what that is based on is how we want to feel. 
And when motives aren't met, we're left with an emotional experience that we don't want, whether that's stress or fear or boredom. So when we talk about having emotional intelligence at work, a huge part of it is understanding the emotional drivers behind our needs. I also love that you brought up like, hey, I wouldn't have really known what my needs are. And, you know, I helped build the algorithm. I did the research and I only had a confident guess of what two of my five motives would be. So when you take our well-being assessment out of the 28, you come out with these are my five core needs. And then you get a report that helps you think through how do I strengthen these? How well met are they? You know, here's different ideas for you. Let's put together a well-being plan of action. I knew autonomy and flexibility would be in my top five, right? A pretty mm -hmm. confident guess because those are very much deeply tied to my values. The idea mm -hmm. of freedom at work. I've always been an autonomous person. But my other three, when I originally took the assessment, I really wasn't sure what I'd get. And one of them was a complete surprise. Two of my other top five motives were future success and achievement, and they made perfect sense. But the motive that I say was a little bit rough for me to sit with was security. Here I am, this entrepreneurial soul, a risk taker kind of personality in my life. Very, you know, again, I'm out there, I'm adventurous. And it was like, oh gosh, I need security. What is this? Yeah. You know, it felt out of character and uncomfortable and it was my weakest motive because I am leaving behind a lot of security. I am kind of walking away from this coaching practice and some of my research to go, you know, pursue this dream. Mm. And my brain, of course, wanted to come up with all these ideas. It wasn't going to, you know, all these reasons it wasn't going to work, all this fear, all this doubt. And I had to sit there and really, you know, grapple with that and go, okay, how am I going to strengthen this? And I think you mentioned this earlier of we have to kind of look at these needs collectively. And that's a really important part in your results we help you do is, okay, now let's, you know, sure, let's assess each of these five, but now let's take a step back and look at these holistically. And I really realized, you know, for me to achieve what I want to achieve with Motives Met and to have the future success I desire, I can't feel super comfy at work. If I feel fear, if I feel discomfort, these are actually good signs. Mm -hmm. I might not love how it feels, but that is good. If I'm feeling super, you know, in my comfort zone, then I am going to be disregarding two of these other motives. So just even developing that mindset strengthens how I feel about my security need. And then I went, okay, I'm rating security 4.5 out of 10. We help you kind of rate these on a 10 point scale. How could I maybe just inch it up to a six? I don't want it to be a 10. Mm. So you have to, again, kind of think about these together. And sometimes you have to accept a need is going to be put to the wayside. Sometimes you do have to make those tough choices, but they're there whether we want them to be or not. And you're really empowered when you step into it and become aware of it rather than ignoring it, which is what I had been doing. It's um, it's so interesting that you say that. So if I can relate that to this whole idea of values and culture at work and, you know, when organisations say we have X values or we haven't defined our values, actually that 
that's irrelevant what you say the values are or whether or not you've defined them because the values come through in the behaviour that's tolerated in the workplace and, and how people interact with each other. So whether or not you know uh, you have them clearly defined, they are being lived in the organisation. So if you think of that from this needs perspective, whether or not you say that you have needs or whether or not you address the needs at work, they're still being unfulfilled whether you are aware of it or whether you're not. Absolutely. We say you need those well-being analytics Mm. to really gain knowledge and not not be guessing of what's working and what's not in your workplace. It is a tough job for leaders because you have to care about these needs at the individual level. You have to care about them at the team level. And then at that broader cultural level and go, are we creating the conditions for these needs? to thrive and really go, okay, looking at my team, which needs rise to the top and why? Mm. What's the story behind them? Yeah. And then how well met are they? And that's where the evaluation and well-being analytics comes in. Mm. Are certain needs thriving and doing really well? And then, hey, let's celebrate that. And honestly, that's been a really cool part of what leaders have loved to see is again, really gaining that awareness of, of what's strong and going, hey, as I look to attract people into our organization, I'm going to use that. I'm going to say, hey, we care about people's needs. And I happen to really know people feel we do a great job here and there. But I also need to know which motives are suffering, Mm. which motives are threatened, and which motives are just barely hanging on and surviving. And it's a really, again, some organizations go, oh, I don't know if I want to know. (laughs) But like you said, it's happening whether you like it or not. And then you're going to lose those people who don't have their needs met, because mm. again, that's what our research showed. And there's mm. also really interesting research out there. Um, I think the stat was like 51% of people who left their job said there's something that could have been done to stop mm. them from leaving. And then 53% of those people said in the last three months, no leader in the organization or manager talked to me about my job satisfaction. So the idea was, hey, if you had had conversations, regular conversations with your people, where they also had the psychological safety and trust that they felt they could be open and honest, you had those conversations and they could communicate what needs weren't being met, then you could have done something. Yeah, I have. I mean, I still have so many questions questions, so many things that I'd love to chat to you about. So we kind of talked about the individual and how then that applies at the team or organizational cultural level. How how does that translate or, um, you know, if you're looking at needs at an individual level, how do you translate that then into kind of multiple people into a team or into the organizational structure itself? That's a great question. You really have to create a well-being plan of action at each of those levels. So you need individual person to person to have goals and strategies and an action plan for your personal well-being, each person on my team. But then I need to have our team together to be talking about it and looking at trends. Oh, at a team level, these three needs are really in common. So let's talk about this as a team and strategize as a team. And then at the company level, it's really important to do what we call a well-being audit mm. and really get a sense from people of when and and when have we not, you know, strengthen these motives and what, you know, we call it a to-do list and a to-don't list. 
as it relates to these needs. And we also call it builders and blockers. What what builds these up and what really seems to to block them? So you do, you know, looking at a well-being plan of action or a well-being strategy when companies go, hey, we know we need one of those. You have to approach it on each of those levels if you really want to be successful. Yeah, love that. Um, the the other question I had around that again is is kind of putting monetary value on it, I suppose. So, if someone wanted to do something like this, how do you convince? Is the wrong word, but how how do you sell it into them? So. You know, if someone is listening today and they're thinking, God, we could really use something like that. You know, is can you put something to say, you know, you mentioned about the statistic that said 51% of people who left their job said that something could have been done. And I'm certainly one of those people I, in at least two cases where I, I left my job. Something could have been done about it, but wasn't. And certainly no leader came to speak to me about my satisfaction at work, nor my well-being or anything like that. Um, can we put some sort of a monetary value? Because, you know, some of the statistics I've seen in research say that when someone leaves an organization, it can cost anywhere between 30% and 200% of that person's salary in order to replace them. So that's a huge cost. If someone if someone leaves an organization, it, it really is a huge cost to that organization. So it's in, in people's interest to retain the staff that they have. Yes. And I think on one of your podcasts, I remember you were talking about this in detail because it is, there is such a cost to losing people just at the financial level, but then there's the whole morale of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, you lose someone that yeah. the team hires, people are left picking up the slack. You potentially lose clients and customers who really liked working with that person. There, you know, there's a whole domino effect. We call it the um, the the flamingo effect. You know, when a flamingo raises its leg, and then all of the other flamingos around it raise their legs as well for no apparent oh, reason. I love that. <laughs> I love that analogy. That's amazing. That's exactly it. I mean, that is exactly it. And our research again showed that people were less likely to be looking for a new job if their needs were, were met. They were yeah. less likely to leave. They had worked at their company longer and they cared about their company's well-being. They felt that, hey, yeah, my company cares about my needs, but I then care about my company. I care about their strategic objectives. I'm engaged. I want to help them do better. So it's a you know two-way street relationship here. And when you think about what that small investment is compared to that big financial and emotional loss from losing people, it's really kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think prevents um, leaders from doing this type of work to begin with? And, and it's so funny because when I say organizations and when I say leaders, I, I kind of mean in a very generic sense, but but they're humans too, you know? So is it a case that someone gets to a leadership position and they don't necessarily know that these things are available? They don't necessarily know how to how to do these things? They haven't been trained in how to lead people um, properly or, or, you know, what do you think are the big overall blockers, let's say? One of the big ones we've seen is that this is not something that people are coached to do. Mm. They become a man manager or a leader because they're really, you know, good at whatever skills, you know, they need in their job because they've reached certain goals, but not because they really know how to manage people. 
not because they know how to lead people, not because they know how to care for well-being or have the conversations needed to have these needs be well met at work. And I can relate to that when I first kind of became a what felt like a real manager to a team of five. And I remember I would take them off site, you know, somewhere fun for lunch, I'd get them out of the office about two months in. And I would, I tried to have a conversation about what do you need to be happy? Why did you want to take this job? Here's what I need from you. But my God, it would have been so much easier if I had had a way to do this that that just streamlined it, that that helped me. And I do think it is something that hasn't been really available till now. There are more things coming out and Motives Med is, is one of them. But I think also too, leaders have a difficult time having tough conversations with people. And sometimes that's what is needed to meet motives. You know, they don't want to hear things that aren't going so hot. They don't want to hear how they aren't doing a good job. Two of the 28 motives are around leadership. One is manager support and one is trustworthy leadership. So you need to be able to have those conversations. And additionally, another really tough thing is leaders are burnt out themselves. They have so much on their plate. They can barely get things done. And they're not actually given the time to have these conversations, to coach their people, to care. In general, we say an obstacle to well-being, whether it's at the personal level, at the relationship level, leader to employee level, is that it takes time. You want people to show each other appreciation and think about, hey, here's something I could do to show someone that was so amazing that you helped me out in that way. Or, hey, I see you really care about fun and connection. Let's go do this. They need time for those things. Mm -hmm. I have the growth motive and I want to learn new things, take an online course, have an experience. I need the time to do that. If I have the Mm -hmm. innovation motive and I go, I want to try this new thing. I want to take a risk. Let's try it. Again, that's that's kind of time and resources. Mm. So that seems to be a missing part. You can't say well-being matters and say it's a priority, but then not give the time and resources to make it happen. I love that. That like on the one hand, you're saying um on the one hand, you're saying that well-being is the priority, but actually, you know, we could probably go off on a whole other tangent about priorities and time management because I think from all of the conversations I have, people are, it's not just that they're stressed. I think that the more work you do, the more that comes up. Your work is never ending, no matter what you're doing. I think this perception is that you work and you'll never get to the end of your to-do list because more things keep getting added on to your to-do list. And maybe it shortens a little bit, but then it gets longer again. And there's always going to be something to do, no matter what it is that you're doing and running your own business. I'm sure you can relate to this as well, as well as back in the corporate days. There's there's always going to be more stuff to do. So I'm learning more and more about this. And it's it's about saying no to certain things. But obviously in, in, in the corporate world, you can't necessarily say no. But I think then it becomes the role of the leader to to ruthlessly prioritize and to back their teams and say the team has too much on at the moment. We can't take on any additional client work, uh, whether that is we need additional resources in the team or this is a short term project and we just need people to work additional hours for a week or a couple of weeks or whatever it might be. Um, any any thoughts around that, this idea of prioritizing and actually making time for well-being? The great point. One um, 
kudos that a few managers gave us was that this gives them ammo. Okay. Kind of like you're saying, this yeah. helps me go to even my higher ups and say, Hey, this is, this is what my team needs. This is what they aren't getting. Here's what we can't do. If you want, it's much harder to argue with, Hey, we can't do this. If you want these people to stay and be happy and have their needs met. Mm-hmm that puts them in a much tougher position and it gives them kind of actual data, Mm. actual, you know, information to go to those leaders with. They, at this one company, they'd really been trying to push a no meeting day and a half meeting or a half day Friday and a full no meeting day. And Mm. they had a manager offsite where they talked about all these needs and overwhelmingly managers kept saying, Hey, my people really feel bogged down with meetings. It takes up so much of their time. Then they don't have time to do work and they, they need time to get into their work. And then they have a meeting and then it's two hours and they have another meeting. And out of that, they were, the leaders were kind of like, okay, how do we ignore this? And they did, they got no meeting Fridays. And in the summer they got half day Fridays. So you know, it becomes harder to, to argue and ignore those things when you're able to come and say, Hey, from this assessment, from the workshops, from having conversations with my people, here, here's the paper that shows it. Mm-hmm. So it's super helpful from that standpoint, because I think that can be, there's so many leaders who do care. Yeah. They want their people to be happy. They, mm-hmm. they want to lead well. And having this really helps them do that because sometimes they feel like there isn't enough I can do, right? I can't change everything. Yeah. But this puts them in a position of, of empowerment and it actually takes a little bit of work off the leaders. Part of what our tool and assessment helps do is build what we call the motive mindset of the idea is each of these needs is only going to be well met if everybody comes together to care a little bit more and support one another. So, hey, if you want well-being at work, sure, I'm a big part of this, but you are a big part of this. You have to talk to me openly and honestly about boundaries and what you need. And hey, coworkers, if you want your well-being at work, you got to be willing to support others. This is a joint effort here. This Mm. is a path we have to walk together. And creating that mindset is so important because it is sometimes a little overwhelming for leaders to go, oh, wow, it's not the 10 things I need for my team to be happy at work. Is that article on the internet told me there's 28 things I got to care about. This is overwhelming and a lot. But what it does is really, again, make this a team effort and take some of that stress off while also still being honest of the fact that a leader is going to play a very pivotal role to the degree that these motives thrive at work. Mm. I love that. I love that approach. Um, And this this idea, yeah, that like some leaders care. Now, we talked about this at the very beginning of the podcast, but we haven't touched on it yet. And I'd love to to kind of at least cover the topic slightly before we wrap things up. And that's psychological safety. So what you're talking about here assumes that there is psychological safety in the organisation and that leaders feel safe to speak up to their managers and that employees feel safe to talk to their managers about what's going on for them. Any thoughts around that and and whether that relates to this overall need satisfaction or whether it's a basic requirement in order to have need satisfaction at work or or have your motives met at work in order to be able to facilitate those kinds of conversations? It's tough to walk into your boss's office and say, hey, you're micromanaging me and it's driving me nuts. Hey, those (laughs) emails at 10 p.m. that you're, you know, kind of implying I need to reply to, 
really not helping my work-life harmony motive. Mm-hmm. Sitting in a team meeting and saying, hey guys, I don't feel super appreciated and that my voice is heard here. Um, I'm no longer doing as much what I'm passionate about. Guys, how, how can you guys take things off my plate? I mean, these are tough things, tough conversations, even if you have high psychological safety and trust. But we know that psychological safety is extremely rare in organizations. Mm. And Amy Edmondson, who's you know the pioneer of psychological safety, says one of the best ways to create it is asking good questions. And that's what our software is built to do, is to help people communicate, ask good questions, and thus build that psychological safety and trust. Because it's much easier in a one-on-one when your manager asks you, hey, what's one area of your job you'd like more freedom in? And how can I support that? Hey, when it comes to work-life harmony, are you more of an integrator? You ebb and flow through the day, or are you a separator? You kind of need to turn that email off and then not respond till the next day. Let's have that conversation. To in a team meeting, say, hey, why doesn't everyone share when they felt most appreciated on this team and when they felt, you know, felt least appreciated? Mm. Asking those questions opens up the door to so much. And it can again seem like common sense. But we're so busy, we have stuff going on and having to think of the questions for each of these 28 needs would be a lot for a leader, but we've built it all into this software where it's really easy. You see someone's results. And again, if I don't care that much about purpose at work, which rubs people the wrong way, but we know that some people go, I have a really meaningful life outside of work. I'm so happy I have autonomy and flexibility so that I can do that. I don't feel a big sense of meaning or purpose in my job, but I have great well-being. I'm doing really well. So instead of as a leader, me asking you all about purpose and kind of pushing Mm -hmm. that, why don't I ask you about the things that matter to you? Because if you have autonomy or clear expectations as a motive, but that motive is kind of in the toilet and it's not doing so hot, they could have all the purpose in the world or organization could be this meaning purpose-driven organization. Mm -hmm. But if that person's needs aren't met, they're going to walk out the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the software goes, okay, let's focus on your core needs and then let's ask some really good questions so that we can have that conversation and make it the norm in our organization that this stuff is talked about, which creates psychologically safe workplaces a place where we have courageous conversations, where we're honest, where we build that trust. And also a great way to create psychological safety is through sharing personal stories. And so it isn't just knowing the motives that are important to someone. It's knowing their whole story behind them. Why? Why is that? You know, again, a motive can be tied to values. A motive can rise to the top because it's threatened. A motive can be a deal breaker motive, or it can be like, hey, in my last job, I really wasn't treated fairly. This and this and this happened. And so that's become really important to me. I mean, if I work with somebody, that's really important for me to know is the story behind it. And when we share those stories, it does create more of that trust, that compassion, that human to human um, connection that is that is often so missing at work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely love that. Love everything that you've, you've said. Uh, the question I ask Everyone who comes on the podcast, Kelly, what does being happier at work mean to you? To me, of no surprise, being happier at work means having my motives met. And I shared what my motives were when I uh, first took the assessment, when we launched our tool, 
But, but again, your needs will change throughout the course of your work life. Mm. So I actually took the assessment. I take it every year and I took it in December and I still had autonomy and flexibility as motives. Those are really core to who I am mm. and future success. If I feel, which I do, that I'm on the path to reaching my dreams for motives met and helping people and my goals, that is happiness at work to me. But then I had two new motives prestige and trustworthy leadership. As I've grown Motives Met, it's so important to me that I'm proud of what we're doing, mm -hmm. that I'm creating what I believe is a prestigious company that really I can just feel so proud of and that other people admire the work we're doing. And I have a bigger role to play now as a leader in my life than I've ever had before. And I want to really help organizations create better leadership through using our tool. So when those five motives are met, I am really happy at work. And again, I'm lucky to say that they are in a really healthy place. Brilliant. Love that. And if people want to find out more about your tool, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Our website is motivesmet.com. So again, you can see our framework there and we have all sorts of great information, but I am most active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Kelly Mackin. And my email is kelly.mackin at motivesmet.com. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much for your time today. I so enjoyed that conversation. And I think, dare I say, from both sides, we probably could have continued for another couple of hours. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you again. So thank you so much, Kelly. Appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much. I agree. I think we could have chatted for hours today, but this was really lovely. I appreciate it. That was Kelly Mackin of Motives Met and I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I feel like we uncovered lots and lots of stuff that can be implemented straight away. So I, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Kelly also has a book as a reminder, a, a new book coming out called A Work Life Well Lived. So do go and check that out when that becomes available as well. Now, before I go on to do a summary of some of the key points that we covered in today's episode, I wanted to remind you to get involved in the conversation. I'd love to know what you thought of today's episode. So you can do that on Spotify directly in the app, or if you want to reach out through social media, uh, the best way to do that is through my website, happieratwork.ie. You'll find all of my links there. Uh, you'll find various different ways to connect with me there as well. What I particularly liked about Kelly's approach is this idea that it's a non-BS approach. It's very much based on research, very much based on need satisfaction at work. And she takes a very similar approach in terms of how she addresses the issue of well-being at work that I do. So that's one reason that I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Now, I, I'll, I'll talk you through some of the, the key things that I took away from it. And this is about the fact that it's about human needs. And there's no really clear definition at the moment of what well-being at work actually means. And it can mean different things to different people. And I think that's because different people have different needs. And therefore, it's really hard to have an overall definition. But if we use the, the idea that well-being at work is connected to need satisfaction at work, then it, it becomes, I suppose, it becomes a lot clearer as an overarching theory or an overarching theme that if you can satisfy people's needs at the human level at work, then they will have a greater sense of well-being at work and also outside of work. 
I was also interested in this concept of having to earn well-being. So we often feel that we don't deserve to be happy at work and that our well-being is somehow earned by putting in, I'm guessing, putting in effort at work or putting in a lot of effort or spending a lot of hours. And then somehow we deserve to look after ourselves at the end of that rather than well-being kind of being woven in within the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. Kelly also shared the idea that well-being is deeply personal and when you take a people first approach, it means taking a needs first approach as well. So when we're talking about being more person centred, we need to become more aware as individuals of what our own needs are, but also to be able to communicate those in a meaningful way that other people can also understand as well. Um, and I love that Kelly has a tool to be able to do that and to be able to use that language around that as well. She also highlighted the fact that, again, you know, it's kind of obvious that different people have different needs, but But the fact that we can be judgy about the needs that other people have if they're not similar to our own needs. So this the idea that there is diversity across the different needs that people have. She also mentioned that fun as a need can be something that's overlooked at work. So, again, we think work needs to be quite serious. think that we we shouldn't have to have fun or there's no need to have fun. And I know certainly from a personal perspective, I have worked in organisations where the work has been fun. The people I've worked with have been really fun as well. And and fun is one of my core values and it's something I like to bring into what I do. I don't know, does that come across through the podcast? I'm not entirely sure. I think sometimes it does, maybe not always, um, but it's definitely something that I'm that I'm kind of try to bring in consciously into into my work. Kelly also shared that there is an emotional component to this and from the work that I'm doing and what I'm seeing with clients, but also from the research that I'm doing and from the books I'm reading at the moment, there's this kind of collective idea that it is. It's how we want to feel and we're we're inherently driven by our emotions and how we want to feel. And I know on certainly on a, a previous podcast episode, we talked about different triggers and things can trigger you at work and and how better to manage our emotional state at work. And if you want to go and check out those previous episodes, one of them was with Leslie Cooper that was released only a couple of weeks ago and the other was released before Christmas with Ashley Collins. So definitely go and, and check those out if that's something you're interested in understanding a little bit more about. Now, we talked about the idea of collective well-being and looking at well-being analytics. And again, don't want to don't want to drive home too much down this kind of point, but it, it's um, that's something that Kelly's tool will be able to help out with as well. What I do want to bring us back to is this idea that from research, it shows that 51 percent of people who left their jobs said that something could have been done about it. And I know certainly in in my case, in, in the jobs that I've left previously, something definitely could have been done. And I tried to proactively do stuff before making the decision to leave as well. But 53 percent said that a leader spoke to them about job satisfaction. So to me, that's actually that's quite low. So only 53 percent spoke to spoke to someone about um, about their job satisfaction. We talked about the idea of doing a well-being audit and the fact that there are builders and blockers to well-being as well. And I think it's really important to be aware of those things. 
back to this idea of managers and I suppose um, the responsibility of leaders. So if leaders are not speaking to their teams about job satisfaction, if they're not speaking to their teams or don't have the language to speak about well-being at work, I think it's, you know, it's it's going to result in in turnover, essentially. One of the points that Kelly made in relation to turnover ties in exactly with the research that I did as part of my master's. And it's that people are less likely to be looking for a new job if their needs are being met at work. So that ties in directly with the research I did, which looked at the intention to quit uh, in relation to how people's needs are being satisfied at work. While we talked about this idea that so many leaders can and want to lead well, but there's something missing there that they don't know what it is to actually lead, that they're very good at the day to day job. But when it takes stepping up to that next level, maybe they're struggling a little bit. They're not getting the support in terms of training, in terms of manager support, in terms of time and resources to be able to do a leader's job effectively. Uh, They also find it hard to have those tough conversations. And I know certainly from the conversations that I've had, you know, a lot of people find it hard to have those tough conversations and they'd rather avoid them or they'd rather leave tough conversations till kind of a more formal time, like a quarterly review or end of year review. In relation to having enough time then to be able to do that, you have time for things that are a priority. So it's it's making sure you know what those priorities are. And if retention and reducing turnover and increasing productivity are a priority, then it's about focusing on well-being and making well-being at work a priority and uh, allocating time and resources to driving well-being at work so that people are satisfied in, in their jobs, so that people can do their jobs well and so that people stay in the organisation for longer. And lastly, I will leave you with the idea of psychological safety. And I know this is something that has come up again and again and again on the podcast. For me, it's one of the fundamental things that we need to have at work in order to thrive, in order to perform really, really well. Kelly's advice around that was asking good questions to build psychological safety and trust. And it's through having those courageous conversations, sharing personal stories. And for me, and again, this has been shared on the podcast before, it's about being vulnerable and sharing a little bit about yourself. It's not something that's going to happen necessarily overnight. It does take time to build psychological safety in an organisation so you don't You don't just try it and then give up because you think it didn't work. It's about trying it again and again and again until you can build that sense of psychological safety and trust. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort, but it's really fundamental for driving a sense of well-being at work. That's it for episode 149 of the Happier at Work podcast. As always, I would love for you to get involved in the conversation Next week is episode 150. I can hardly believe that myself when I'm saying those words. It's, it certainly seems like a lot. Um, I have a real special episode for you next week and I know you're really, really going to enjoy that. So uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. As always, would love to know what you think. So do get involved in the conversation and thank you for tuning in today. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I am so glad you tuned in today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love to get your thoughts. Head on over to social media to get involved in the conversation. 
If you enjoy the podcast, I would love if you could rate, review it, or share it with a friend. If you want to know more about what I do or how I could help your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.